And its narrative of Beijing aims at highlighting the shared socialist path towards the Balkans, using this existence of some degree of post-communist nostalgia in the region and focusing on traditional friendship and shared past. On 1999, five bombs rained down from U.S. jets on the Chinese embassy in Belgrade as part of NATO's air campaign to halt the deadly assault by the forces of Yugoslav President Slobodan Milosevic on ethnic Albanians in Kosovo. Nearly a quarter of a century later, China is transforming the site of its bombed former embassy into an expansive cultural center said to be one of the largest of its kind in Europe. Once opened, the center will serve not only as a potent symbol of China's growing presence in the Western Balkans, but also the potential kinship between the two regions, not least owing to the shared socialist past that Chinese diplomats often emphasize to advance those relations. In the long run, some experts deem China's growing economic clout in Europe primarily through the Western Balkans, a more consequential trend than Russia's invasion of Ukraine itself. To unpack just how deep China's influence on the region runs, we are joined this week by Demir Marusic of the Atlantic Council and Val Zenali of the Marshall Center. Enjoy the episode. So thank you so much for joining us today. Val, I want to start with you. If you could give us an overview of the history of Chinese relations with the Balkans region. Obviously, China is governed by the Chinese Communist Party and Yugoslavia was a communist state during the Cold War. How has that history shaped ties between the Balkans or the countries in the Balkans and China? Well, thank you, Julian. I'm so glad to be part of this podcast. Thank you for having me. That's a great question. Um, The Balkans have seen a significant expansion of Chinese influence over the last decade, uh, and that is in line with Beijing's geoeconomic and diplomatic vision of the Belt and Road Initiative, but also in the broader context of China-European Union relations. As you rightly point out, China is not a newcomer in the Balkans. Diplomatic, economic, cultural ties with Beijing have existed for decades for Albania, but also the countries of the former Yugoslavia. But I'll say that activities in recent years have shown that China is really laying the groundwork for a long-term and ever-deeper presence in the region. And its, in its narrative, Beijing aims at highlighting the shared socialist path towards the Balkans, using this existence of some degree of post-communist nostalgia in the region and focusing on traditional friendship and shared past. These are the common words that they use also in their narrative in the region. Uh, I'll start with Albania. Diplomatic relations between China and Albania have officially started back in 1949, and they grew even stronger based on the shared communist ideology. And then the split of communist Albania from the Soviet Union in the early 60s that opened the way for a stronger and more exclusive relationship with China. 
uh, strong economic and cultural links were developed th- during those two decades until this relationship fell apart in 1978 due to ideological disputes. That was the reason, because China was opening up to the market economy. And as you know, Albania then isolated further itself from the rest of the world until 1991. Uh, when we talk about the Sino-Yugoslav uh, relations, uh, they were good um, uh, during the 60s and the 70s, but they became even closer after the breakup between Beijing and Tirana. Uh, so we have very important visits in the late uh, 70s, uh, both um, you know, uh, Chinese Prime Minister visiting, visiting Belgrade and former President Tito visiting China for the first times. Then ties were strengthened in the mid-90s when the isolated, you know, uh, former president Slobodan Milosevic found an ally to faraway China, and that opened the door actually also for the first Chinese migrants in in Serbia. Uh, Serbia today is the country in the Balkans, but I'll say also in Europe, if you consider per capita, that has the largest number of Chinese uh, migrants. Uh, China is considered strategic partner for Serbia, which has also become the main beneficiary of Chinese investments in Southeastern Europe. And then uh, since 2012, the five Western Balkan countries, excluding Kosovo, which is not recognized from China, has been have been all part of the 16 plus one initiative uh, with Central and Eastern European countries. And also are all of these countries are official members of the Belt and Road Initiative. Look, I, I, I think uh, Val captured most of it. Um, the, I think the important thing to uh, keep in mind when thinking about Chinese influence uh, in the region, it has a lot to do with the fact that that um, apart from all of the historical elements and the uh, the appeals to a shared past that Val lines up, is is that you have um, just not terribly well institutionalized and not deeply uh, reformed societies, which um, operate on the principle of the big man, um, uh, basically a, some kind of strong man uh, that that has for centuries uh, intermediated between uh, greater outside powers in the local community and basically has been able to bring the goods to it. Uh, you know, it's it's a it's basically a form of of corruption, but it's it's also just the mode and under which uh, you know politics have operated. And you know, if you look at at history going back, uh, you know, to Ottoman times, uh, you know, past that to uh, to Yugoslav times to independence today, you've always had this sort of uh, dimension to uh, local political economy of uh, you know powerful leaders, almost always men, uh, who get uh, resources from outside and then you know distribute to the community and you know, keep a alliance shared themselves. I think that's the the, the uh, other really, I think, good way uh, beyond geopolitics to sort of understand uh, China's influence and China's game in the region. Um, it is one of, uh, of exploiting this dynamic. Uh, it's also should hasten to add is not a dynamic that's exclusive to the Balkans. It's, it's, uh, it's how corruption works uh, in many parts outside of the, the, the core West. Um, and and when you see uh, basically Chinese influence and Chinese work in the region, uh, it has a, as much to do as anything uh, about uh, you know enriching local elites. Uh, there are all sorts of deals that are non-transparent, um, and then oftentimes, uh, I think most uh, most loudly in the case of Serbia, you are seeing uh, the local leaders actually try and make political hay out of the fact that they have a friend in China. Um, but that's that's less prevalent uh, in the rest of the region, I think, um, 
and it, 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 I think the dynamic of uh, basically uh, double dealing and, um, you know, basically corrupt uh, or at least non-transparent um, uh, tenders and, and, and business dealings uh, is what really forms the, the, the core of the relationship. Um, so when we think about Chinese foreign policy initiatives, the Belt and Road Initiative is the one that looms largest. Um, Val, is the recent engagement by China in the region, is it purely commercial or are we seeing broader areas of cooperation? Well, that's a great question. Uh, I'd like to follow up. I totally agree with Damir on, you know, the re- some reasoning, you know, why China is interested in, in the Western Balkans. Uh, I agree with Damir that uh, political elites in the region, uh, more specifically in Serbia, but also in the other countries, see the presence of China as purely economic and beneficial and mostly opportunistic. Uh, that meaning that Chinese projects are easily aligned with political cycles and also coupled down with um, uh, top-down rather than transparent uh, uh, and market-driven procurement decisions, meaning you know enriching uh, some of the elites. So Beijing's offers allow decision makers in the region to fuel patronage networks and also boost short-term electoral advantages. So um, you know just to follow up on on, on the first question. Uh, when it comes to this, you know, balance between um, commercial and political interest, I think we should not lose sight that Chinese interests in the Balkans should be seen in the context of Beijing's overall strategy in Europe. I think it's the geostrategic position of the Western Balkans that's a perfect bridge head to European Union markets, and it's a key transit corridor for the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative. So uh, Chinese interests in the Balkans are strongly related to infrastructure projects or related to privatization opportunities, where we know that uh, demand for preferential lending is high and acquisition prices are low, are much lower than the other European countries. Uh, But also Beijing is searching for new markets to export uh, and expand its exports. Uh, It's searching for strategic assets in the front yard of the EU, uh, but also Chinese companies, as we're noticing in some of the countries, are securing access to natural resources and focusing on strategic sectors such as energy, mining, uh, and mineral processing. So my point is that the Balkans is a region that's geostrategically very important because of the proximity that it has with the European Union market. And so if we take all the markets of the Western Balkans, it's um, all six countries, so also including Kosovo, it's less than 18 million consumers. Uh, it's a GDP around $130 billion in 2021. And that makes up less than 1% of the European Union European Union market. So it's important to look also at numbers in, and how significant economically uh, is, is the Western Balkans for China. I think it's more significant, as I mentioned, for the proximity with the European Union. So it has geopolitical and economic interest in the region. So um, considering the very small market, uh, it's not that important. For, for China. However, we have seen that trade exchanges have increased uh, and China has become uh, the second or the third largest trading partner for the region, mainly ex- um, import partner. 
Trade has increased about three times since 2012, when the countries joined uh, the 16 plus one initiative, going from uh, almost $3 billion to $8 billion. But also in terms of terms of European comparisons, trade, Chinese trade with the Western Balkans make up, makes up only 1% of the Chinese trade with the European Union, so not, not very important. Uh, but the actual trade balance is very heavily tilted in favor of China, meaning that we have mainly Chinese imports in the region uh, rather than um, exports from the Western Balkans in the Chinese market. That means that trade deficits towards China have risen tremendously for the region. Uh, this is when it comes to trade. When it comes to investment, uh, we have seen a much rapid uh, Chinese expansion in investment. There ha- there's been a study recently uh, from Byrne showing that there, have, there are around 120 projects with an estimated value of uh, a little bit more than $30 billion. Uh, now, this might not be significant uh, for, for China, but this is significant for the Western Balkans. Because if you take all investment in the Western Balkans, which is around $85 billion, meaning means that it makes up 40% of the total uh, foreign direct investment. Uh, but the trick there is that this money is not FDI. It's not foreign direct investment. It's not actual uh, foreign direct investment. It's mostly loans. And actually, this is the main form of economic cooperation in the region. Uh, concessional lending for infrastructure, mainly in transport and energy, and it's done through the state-owned banks, through the Chinese financial vehicles, but also through uh, Chinese companies, and in most of the cases, also Chinese labor force. Demir, I, before you before you jump in on that, I just want to ask as well. Um, you know, we're seeing a reaction to these Chinese loans as part of the Belt and Road Initiative and the fear over debt traps and an emerging backlash from populations that uh, in countries that are suffering from a high debt burden. Demir, are we seeing the same reaction in the Balkans and how is that affecting its position with Europe and with China? Well, look, I mean, how do I put it? Uh, I, 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 I don't think you're seeing uh, that much of a backlash, quite frankly, on the ground against uh, Chinese investment because uh, you know, I, I hate to say it, but the the you know, civil society in the region uh, is dispirited. It's it's somewhat quiescent. I mean, you you, it's 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 a sign of uh, yet another manifestation of uh, of corruption and sort of self dealing that happens among elites. Um, but the 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 Chinese aspect of it. In and of itself, I don't think it's 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 that pronounced in the region. Look, just to to build on what what Val said there uh, in her answer, and just to sort of underline it again, um, I think that anyone thinking about Chinese influence uh, in the Western Balkans, uh, anyone in the West thinking about it, needs to uh, see it as part of a bigger play for the European market. Um, you know, it's you know we we as people that work on the Western Balkans, we can we can slice and dice what's happening in these countries and and give uh, detailed pictures. But none of none of these things make any sense outside of a uh, of a bigger play um, for the region. Um, and and you know, I, I I hasten to add then that while political influence um, and 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 such things obviously is of uh, some importance to China, and perhaps they can, they hope to count on it uh, when the chips are down, uh, perhaps, you know, if there is escalation over Taiwan and, and uh, things get heated in, in international fora, uh, perhaps they're counting on political influence in the Western Balkans uh, 
you know, helping them out in, I don't know, votes in the UN or something like that. But, but honestly, um, it really is, it just needs to be understood as a bigger play uh, for access to European markets. Um, and in that sense, um, while it is important, uh, you know, I think to look at it in that, in, in, in that lens and understand um, basically the uh, play by the Chinese for the Balkans as a um, part of the, the broader story about European enlargement into the region, uh, the imperatives for it to do so uh, for, you know, basically to integrate uh, the Western Balkans onto uh, basically European standards and the broader European economy. Um, it's a... Uh, uh, um, and, and, and basically contextualizing China in that sense, it doesn't make too much sense, I think, to think about uh, what China's play in any of the individual countries is. Uh, keep a picture, keep, uh, keep focus on the bigger picture on this, which again is, is uh, uh, the bigger geostrategic play. The Balkans by themselves uh, are, not, are not a geostrategic play um, alone. So, so you've brought up an interesting point that actually I want to turn over to Val. Um, I, I realize I've been using the phrase the Balkans or the Western Balkans, and it's a bit like saying the Middle East or the Gulf. Um, obviously, there are many countries within it. Is Are there certain countries in which the relationship is deepest? And how does the sort of the history of the Balkans and particularly its sort of vociferous history affect its relationship or these particular countries' relationship with China compared to the EU? Val, I'll start with you. Well, yeah, thank you. I mean, that, that's uh, it's an interesting question. So, um, you know, following up on what, what uh, Damir said, I think, you know, in the region, when it comes to, you know, public perception also on China, you mentioned, you know, if there is negative reaction on the expensive, you know, Chinese infrastructure projects and the uh, the debt uh, trap, you know, uh, uh, possibilities. I think it's the political behavior in the region that shapes public perception, too. I'll say that few in the Western Balkans really have an opinion on the domestic situation in China and uh, the geographical you know, distance plays in, in, in uh, Beijing's favor. But also when it comes to the 16 plus one initiative that became you know, 17 plus one and then back to 16 plus one, it may become 14 plus one uh, soon, uh, or the Belt and Road Initiative, I don't think there is much you know, knowledge in the region. And I think it's this also Beijing's narrative and, um, you know, uh, uh, that, that, you know, brings itself as a partner to bring wealth in the Western Balkans and uses the economic carrots and the levers also for public relations and strategic messaging to influence the public opinion in the region. I believe that Beijing is taking an, an opportunistic approach in the region, of course, needs to be seen, as Damir said, uh, in the broader context of the Beijing's overall strategy in Europe. Uh, but here we see a hybrid approach. You mentioned a couple of times the Belt and Road Initiative. I think in the Balkans, we see uh, a combination of elements of infrastructure projects that we see in developing countries that are part of the Belt and Road Initiative, such as in you know Africa but also economic interactions with the EU countries, such as in the framework of the 16 plus one. Because, you know, also the 16 plus one is a strange beast. You have like 11 countries that are uh, members of the European Union and have you have the, well, the Western Balkan countries that are in the process of being uh, integrated in, in, the, um, in the European Union. So I think, you know, Beijing is really cultivating this image of itself as being a benign, 
a global player and trying to present itself as a credible source of economic development, but also as a reliable partner looking for opportunities to invest uh, in strategically important sectors. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it's not just the economic influence. Uh, we have seen, uh, you know, with the aim of building a community of friendly countries, Beijing has been investing very heavily in cultural diplomacy uh, from the Confucius Institutes that are present in every country, in every capital, uh, to chambers of commerce, to cultural centers. Uh, but also in recent years, we have seen a marked rise in China's media presence across the Western Balkans. Uh, we're seeing that it's paying greater attention to culture in the media content uh, that, you know, to generate, uh, to promote uh, um, uh, China. And I think the objective is to gain uh, this broader public profile to promote Chinese uh, economic and political model and shape positive narratives about China, or at least avoiding negative news stories on China. And we have seen that across the region. So there is no talk in the media about Chinese suppression on Uyghur Muslims. Um, in, in general, topics such as Hong Kong or Taiwan are treated uh, in a neutral way, or in many cases using uh, Chinese sources. And as Damir said, I think it's the presence um, of a very weak civil society but also the oligarchic uh, influence over the media, which is um, which is very weak uh, in the Western Balkans, that provide more opportunities for uh, for China to present itself as this you know uh, as this um, uh, um, benign global power. Yeah, fantastic. Well, uh, turning uh, to to the next question, and we'll start with uh, uh, Demir, and then we'll turn back to Val. Um, you know, one of the lines of argument, Demir, uh, that uh, governments in other parts of Europe, say Central Europe, have offered when they are asked to justify why they accept uh, Chinese uh, development aid or infrastructure finances is not so much the attractiveness of that money in itself, but rather that compared with um, similar lines of, of financing from Western uh, institutions like the EU or the IMF, the Chinese money comes with less uh, strings attached. And so just to, to uh, uh, ask my question quite directly, uh, how much of the uh, how much of China's involvement in the region, financial involvement, is um, a rejection of Europe? Uh, and what initiatives has the EU taken recently to correct this sort of drift away from the old continent and toward China? Uh, well, look, uh, my colleagues at, uh, uh, at, at SIPE, where I wrote a report um, for them about Chinese investment and influence in, in the region about, I guess, about a year and a half ago at this point, um, they, they have a term for, uh, for basically this, this Chinese capital. Uh, they don't just apply to the, to the Balkans, but it applies very much to the Balkans and also Central Eastern Europe. They call it corrosive capital um, because, because it comes uh, with no strings attached um, and because uh, in doing so, it undermines um, you know, efforts at, at more sort of longstanding reforms to rule of law and standards that are in fact necessary for uh, countries to basically join and be full, uh, good and uh, uh, active members of the European Union. Now, for, for countries within the European uh, Union already, uh, 
that pre presents one set of challenges for the EU itself and for uh, core uh, EU members. Uh, that is to say, the the undermining of um, existing standards that you know have been hard fought uh, in the 1990s. That you know, as these countries basically acceded to the the full union. Um, in the Western Balkans, the problem is is that the countries uh, still outside. Um, you know, I, it's it's no longer fashionable, I guess, to call Croatia and uh, and Slovenia Balkan countries. They're Adriatic countries now that they're in the EU. But uh, the the six that are are are, are still outside and are still uh, hoping to get in. Um, the 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 main problem with corrosive capital is that it it stunts uh, the the efforts for reform. So you know, we were talking about the. The, the weakness of civil society, the, the general sort of apathy in the region, the lack of interest, the oligarchic media that doesn't ask the kind of questions that are required. All this makes, um, makes basically uh, the, the, the entrenched rulers uh, of all the countries, um, basically they, they can get away with more. And China plays a great role for that, that it allows them, it gives them a source of capital. Uh, some of that gets redistributed through largesse and, uh, you know, basically uh, as this enters the sort of political machine. Uh, but largely it's also skimmed off the top um, and it, it allows them to sort of entrench themselves more. Let me just say one more thing about this. And it's about the the, the question of the EU uh, itself and, and the perception of the EU within the region. Um, and, uh, you know how 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 that's shaping up. Maybe more more directly answering your question. Um, it's striking the extent to which uh, it's it's in Serbia more than anywhere else that this idea of um, uh, of the leadership of President Alexander Vucic um, he he's taken on this this mantle of of call it Titoism of non alignment, which I still think well clearly still has. Um, uh, appeals uh, to to his electorate. I think Serbia is a special case because uh, of the wars of the 1990s. There's a, a lot of resentment um, among the populace that uh, that they feel like they've been uh, created a pariah out of, uh, that uh, you know they don't actually have friends in the West and that, that their future uh, may not be in the EU. And so uh, the sort of non-aligned act that President Vucic uh, plays, um, balancing Serbia between not just China and the European Union, but also Russia and the European Union, um, is, is very appealing. And so you see, unlike in other countries where I think you get a lot of this sort of Chinese influence uh, flying more below the radar in in Serbia, it, it's actually a political tool. Um, uh, so when uh, uh, you know during COVID, there were placards all over Belgrade thanking Brother Xi for for his assistance in providing uh, uh, first aid care. And again, this was a a huge own goal by the European Union that the Western Balkans uh, actually uh, was not taken care of by the West. Uh, that uh, both Russia and China played a a big role. And uh, within the Western Balkans, uh, President Vucic played a masterful game. Uh, quite frankly, capitalizing on the fact that he was able to uh, get stuff from the EU, but also from China and Russia to, for, the better, for the betterment of his people, for his country, but also spreading that largesse uh, further around the region. Um, just to give you a, a very quick anecdote, um, I was really struck. I was in, in, in Sarajevo uh, about a year ago. Uh, I was meeting a friend of mine who works in one of the, the sort of civic parties in, in, in Bosnia. Um, and, uh, you know, very broadly liberal, very pro-European. She said, and Bosniak, I'd say, so a Bosnian Muslim. And she said that, that her mother, uh, who lived through the war and, and all the horrors of the war in Bosnia, uh, she, she herself was, uh, was warming to Vucic because what he had been able to pull off 
um, during during the COVID crisis. So, you know, it's to begin to answer the question, we can get into more of the details. What is the European Union doing about this? This is what I was getting at in, in my earlier answers. I think it's really important to understand that um, what we're talking about when we're talking about Chinese influence in the region, we really are talking about where does the region end up in the medium to long term? Does it end up firmly in the West or does it remain this kind of nebulous border region uh, that is contested and uh, infinitely contestable by uh, you know disruptor powers, whether they be in the Gulf, whether they be China, whether they be Russia, wherever Russia ends up in the medium term. Um, and and that's the question before everyone. There have been signs that the European Union is is taking the region more seriously. And like I said, happy to talk about that more. Uh, but those are the stakes um, with uh, with what's happening right now. Wonderful. And we are going to return to uh, some of the implications of this for. Uh, sort of internally within the EU, but I want to turn to uh, Val here and sort of extend uh, the prior question. Um, I think one of the uh, very interesting uh, points of uh, Demir's answer is that the uh, rationale that is deployed by governments um, are, are pretty similar uh, both in the Western Balkans and in, more, in, in countries that have more recently uh, uh, entered the EU. When you look at a country like Hungary, for instance, uh, the government of, of Prime Minister Orban is also uh, explaining that it wants to balance east and west, that it wants to be um, be a sort of a uh, b between straddling both uh, areas of influence. And um, my question would be, um, you know, um, what is what is the uh, what is the accession of uh, countries in the Western Balkans into the EU? How is that going to change the balance of power in in uh, matters relating to China within the EU? Uh, when um, we've seen that countries such as Hungary have repeatedly blocked uh, resolutions and statements condemning China's treatment of the Uyghurs or condemning China's uh, uh, treatment of Hong Kong. Uh, how is uh, the, the countries that are currently on, path, on, on the path to accession to the EU, how would their uh, uh, future membership affect that balance uh, in, 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 in the matter of, of China, Val? Hi there, this is not Val, this is Francois from the editing board right now. Um, if you want to listen to Val's brilliant answer on China, the EU and the Balkans, really recommend you join us on Patreon, where the entire conversation, the full-length conversation will be, and you'll get plenty of, of excellent goodies down the road as well. So please consider joining us on Patreon, we'd very much appreciate it. Now... Back to Julian Jorge. Thank you so much, Val and Demir, for joining us today. It's been a fascinating discussion on the Balkans. I've certainly learned a lot, and I hope our listeners have too. Um, thank you both for joining us, um, and we hope to speak to you soon, hopefully about maybe more positive developments from Europe's relationship with the Western Balkans. So Val and Demir are both out. It's just myself and Jorge now. And I got to say that was one of my favorite conversations that we've done. Uh, I just learned so much um, listening to both of them talk about this region that probably doesn't get enough coverage, uh, I think, when we think about Europe and its periphery. But Jorge, what, what were your thoughts coming out of that episode? Yes, I, I think the crux or, or the fulcrum of the episode, or at least the most interesting part uh, in my view, in terms of the um, the um, choices uh, that are up for the EU to make in terms of the accession uh, processes for some of these Western Balkan nations. I think the, the most interesting point was perhaps when 
Demir said, well, look, um, we cannot expect these uh, Western Balkans nations that have just emerged from the yoke of communism that have uh, that have got uh, that are sort of younger, less mature democracies. We can't ex expect them whether they they uh, accede into the EU or or not. We cannot expect them to become Denmark overnight, right? Um, but but you know, given that they are going to remain imperfect democracies, Demir said, I would rather have them inside the EU uh, because that gives me some. Uh, at least some visibility, and it even gives me some influence over uh, the rule of law and the the uh, division of powers and, and things of that nature in those countries. And and I think uh, this really called to mind what I think scholars call the uh, Copenhagen paradox, uh, which is a reference to the Copenhagen criteria, which are the list of criteria that the EU assesses when uh, a country. Uh, submits an application to become an, an EU member state, such as is the case currently of, say, Serbia, for instance, which isn't uh, which isn't the Western Balkans per se. I think uh, my, my understanding of the region sort of starts with um, Bosnia, uh, but but Serbia also is is currently applying. And and again, the the the, the uh, conundrum for the EU is whether we can. Uh, exercise a larger influence on those countries whilst they remain outside or once they are allowed in. And I think the record of countries that have recently been accepted, well, not, uh, well, uh, I, uh, the, the example of Hungary was given, which, uh, which again gave uh, Demir the uh, reference when he, when he said, you know, I'd rather have sort of several mini Orbans within the EU rather than being a pesky neighbor outside. Um, but, and I think that the, the example of Hungary is, is relevant because it is really a country that is uh, just really uh, a thorn on the side of the Franco-German axis. It really is uh, uh, sort of ups upsetting um, uh, EU leaders and, and, and the European Parliament. And um, so much so that people are now, I mean, uh, Hungary has currently an infringement procedure uh, by the European Commission, which is uh, potentially can pare back money from the EU COVID recovery fund from Hungary over rule of law problems. And um, and that can very well be the case of the, the next uh, Western Balkan nation that uh, gets into the EU. So, so I think to me, the most important element of this conversation was what do we do as a bloc? Do we, do we accept these countries with their, um, with their uh, deficiencies or do we sort of impose an, a stringent standard that no country will be allowed to get in unless they meet? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it goes to that, the heart of, is the European Union a real strategic organization um, that promotes commercial rights, uh, political rights and human rights? Um, or does or is it an idealist organization? And I think that tension of whether to stick to its principles in terms of the rule of law, in terms of anti-corruption measures, has in some ways hindered its ability to be active in its near abroad. Um, you know, we did an episode the other week on Russia's near abroad and declining influence because of perceived lack of power. And in some ways, Europe has been you know asleep at the wheel and not paying attention to the way other powers are coming in and establishing ties uh, in its near region. Um, and we talked about this in our episode on Turkey. 
and again today in talking about Chinese involvement in the Western Balkans. So it really goes to the heart of the central questions facing the European Union in this new strategic environment that we're existing in. Yes, absolutely. And my question to you, uh, Julian, would be the following. Um, you know, again, the question that I try to put to Demir, and I hope I was clear enough, was, look, uh, the line of argument that Hungary gives whenever the EU sort of uh, starts um, raising the issue of China's influence in Hungary, it says, you know, China gives us money, it gives us uh, universities, it gives us um, uh, sort of uh, development money, infrastructure money, and it doesn't ask much in return in terms of uh, uh, the, the standards of rule of law, democracy that we have to, I mean, obviously China being an autocracy, it, it's not interested in spreading liberal democracy in the world, actually quite the opposite. But um, this, it, it really seemed to me from uh, Demir's examples that the Western Balkans are in a very similar position where they're having to, they, they've got two options. Either they take money from the Western-backed well, actually, in, in reality, they take from both. But on one hand, they have the Western multilateral fora like the IMF and the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development and the World Bank, maybe even some of the development uh, institutions, which demand from them uh, sort of really high standards in terms of how that money is spent. Or they take China's money, which is which has less strings attached. Although Val seemed to, Val seemed to suggest that actually it has uh, more strings attached than uh, than we think. What's what 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 is your uh, what's your what are your thoughts there? So I think Demir raised an interesting point uh, on this very particular issue that you're you're asking about, which is that it's not a, not only a case of the strings uh, attached, but for the elites in some of these countries, they are able to benefit financially from the uh, well from what Demir and what you've said are classifying as the absence of strings from Chinese loans. Um, although there are other riders on Chinese investment that these countries need to acquiesce to in order to accept money from China. Um, but at the main point of investment, at the initial contact, um, elites in these countries are able to benefit enormously through additional wealth and by uh, hoarding some of the monetary value that comes from these contracts, which just isn't applicable when you're, when you're borrowing money from, say, a European investment bank or from European capital markets. Where you have to, um, where you have to go apply, go through the rigorous contracting standards of the European Union. Now, I, I think, I don't think it's quite fair to frame it as a dichotomy of well, you either take the Chinese money with no strings attached, or you take the European Union with all its runners and riders. I think there is a way for Europe to invest in these countries in ways that are less exploitative, um, arguably more efficient. If you look at other global projects that China has financed. They're not always done in the most efficient way in terms of care for the local environment, respect for local communities, and also in terms of sustainability um, from an infrastructure perspective. Um, I think Europe has an in there that it just needs to talk about more and find more creative ways of working around some of the intransigence that they're seeing in the Balkans who are just sort of taking what seems like free money on offer from the Chinese. But I don't think it's quite a dichotomy. Um, I understand yeah. Europe's reluctance to offer, um, you know, sort of cash without without any concessions. Um, but I, I think there are ways of combining the depth of European private markets with its uh, government controls to help finance some of these necessary infrastructure projects in ways that China can't, um, simply because we've seen failures in Chinese infrastructure 
in other places around the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wonderful nuance there. Very, very important. Well, I think that's all from us this week on the Balkans. We'll be back with another episode next week. There's a lot of exciting developments happening on the continent. Um, I encourage you again to like and subscribe and importantly share this episode and indeed all of our episodes on Uncommon Decency uh, on whatever social media platforms you're on, um, including Twitter, if it's still around by the time this gets published. Um, Jorge, thank you so much for joining me this week. Thank you, Julian. Thanks a lot for uh, for, for being here and for... Um your work on some of those questions and we look forward to to uh, uh to another episode next week and thank you again to our patrons uh i'm don't have time i'm afraid to give you all name shout outs this week um but you help make this podcast run and uh help us uh keep us on the ground and running out every single week so thank you to everyone um and hopefully you'll have a wonderful week take care oh, yes,